0: In the words I speak and the words we hear are your words of life to us, our God. Amen. Amen. So, as I said, today is Old go Old Sunday, Stir Up Sunday, and Christ the King or the Reign of Christ Sunday. So, what's the deal with the Reign of Christ Sunday? Do you think it's important? And if so, why? Or, yeah, you're not really bust. If so, why? And where do you see the reign of Christ happening around the world today? So, have a conversation. Reign of Christ. Is it important or not? What's the deal with it? And if you run out of something to talk about with that, where do you see it operating in the world today? We've got about, I do know, two minutes. You don't have long. Don't run around. Just get into it. <laughs> Change the word evangelical to red letter or something. And I'd very nice to do that. Basically, it's just saying, look, at the red letters in the Bible is what Jesus actually said. Right. I don't know if I believe exactly what this is saying, but the, if you look at what he actually said, what well, it was quite radical, but we have pretty comfortable lives. Right. For, I was just discussing, you know, for instance, he said, sell everything and follow me. Well, I'm, I'm, no. I don't really did, but I just, I belong to a religious order which that's the foundational statement, the Franciscans began with Francis selling everything he had and following and um, (coughs) after they went through the gospels when people tried to join them those were the passages they found and some of the people that joined them were extremely wealthy Uh, they were leading noblemen of the Sisi and they sold everything they had gave it to the poor and followed him but it is radical most people looked at them and went Mm-hmm. It's a calling, really, isn't it? To yeah. So, the reign of Christ, what do we think about? Is it important having a Sunday about
1: mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. And so, why? I, I took it too. To... the reign of Christ. The mm-hmm. <laughs> reign of Christ in the world is God's It is. Yeah. I took it to the Lord's prayer. for could you come on earth as it is in heaven? And how it's up to each of us to be bringing that face of Christ to those around us in the way we act and the way we interact. Because Paul said, Paul said, being not conformed to this world of being transformed So, this, uh, this Sunday came about in uh, 1925 when Pope Pius XI uh, declared or instituted this Sunday Christ the King's Sunday. And he did it because he was combating the rise of secularism throughout much of Europe, including the rise of non and or nominally Christian dictatorships. It would also have to be said, it's not, not in the official publications, that he wasn't a big fan of democracies. So uh, much of Europe until the end of World War I were ruled by kings. So the German Empire by the Kaiser, the Russian Empire by the Tsar, they did flirt with democracy, but the Tsar and his appointed people held the power. Uh, the Ottoman Empire, the Caliph again flirted with democracy, but it was very limited. Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Emperor. Um, and even when countries like Bulgaria were able to break away. Or Greece, they had royal families. They put kings in charge. And as far as Pius was concerned, that was how the world should work. God appointed kings to rule the people. The notion that people should be in charge of their own welfare was ludicrous. And one of the reasons the thought that Hitler came to power in Germany was because the Catholic Church taught that you should not take part in elections. And so many Catholics did not vote. And if they had voted, They probably wouldn't have voted for Hitler. So, uh, and that meant for Pius, the church was uh, where Christ's authority reigned, and of course he was the Pope, and so he was in charge of the church. So Christ's authority resided in him, and through him, the church, and people should listen to what he and the church had to say and give up on all these other things. So, well, it has murky beginnings, we might say, this Christ looking. We might not agree with the Pope being the one in charge. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have enough trouble with the bishops being the one in charge, really. Well, I do, personally. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, and he was being very clear that actually, with the rise of nationalism, which was one of the gifts of the French Revolution, uh, to Europe and the world, Um, like a deliberate gift they went around spreading the idea of nationalism Um, that our first allegiance is not to our country it is to God which is a bit of a radical idea because mostly we think that God works for our country and so when when our first allegiance is to our country then we are being faithful to God and we can see that in America at the moment, we can see that in the workings of the British Empire again and again we kind of get the two mixed up And we've also confused far too often uh, the status quo and our cultural beliefs with uh, Christianity. Um, I've tried twice to move that lecture, and and it just goes back because we as Christians like things the way they are. I was in part trying to get the handle out of the reason for the thing, but also just moving it around, kind of mixing it up a bit. Uh, We like things as they were. We don't. um, We don't like to change things up. And because of that, Christians have passionately argued for in the name of Christ the King, for slavery, particularly slavery of black people. Lynching, that that's a defendable practice. Racism, apartheid, sexual harassment, misogyny. It's okay if men do these things because we're we're the at the top of the tree and we have argued and continue to argue against gun control and we can say oh that was all in the past but actually that still continues today there are still Christians arguing not for slavery probably not publicly for lynching although I'm sure it kind of circulates around in some circles of the United States but all those other things there are pastors who argue for those kind of things in the name of Christ the King And so I'm not sure how any of that fits with today's readings from Ezekiel. Ezekiel, which talks about this wonderful reading which sits uh, kind of around the um, 580s after the second fall of Jerusalem, uh, the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, It's a a word of hope. Uh, And he talks about the restoration of the people, the, the gathering of the people back into Israel. And David will be their king. Except David died 500 years before that. So he's not talking about the actual David. He's talking about the idea of David in that glorious age of the Davidic So, And we would say as Christians, well, that's talking about Jesus. But um, the line I love in that is that God will feed them with justice. God will feed them with justice. And then we have this reading from Matthew, which... Uh, which is a great reading. So today is the last Sunday in year A. It's the last Sunday before Advent. So next week we go into Mark. We're in year B. So this is the last words we hear from Matthew Gospel, And it is the last words of his last block of teaching. So there are five blocks of teaching. The first block was the Sermon on the Mount. The last block is this block, which began after Jesus had had his to and fro in the Jew, Jerusalem elite and the, some of the Jewish leaders were trying to discredit him. They did that in the temple. As he left the temple, some of his disciples said, look at this amazing place, how glorious how beautiful, it will stand forever. And Jesus says, well, i get too attached to it, it's about to be destroyed. And they're, they're like, what? That's what? When's that going to happen? And so then there's this block of teaching about when is this going to happen? and what all that means, and then about what the kingdom of God looks like. And then, so we've heard the last three parables, or the last three stories of that. So two weeks ago, we heard about the five strength wise virgins and the five foolish virgins. And last week, we talked about the parable of the talents, which is not about gifts, but it's about the block of money, which is about abundance, maybe. We talked about three ways we can understand that. And then this week, our sheep and goats. And all of this, all of this is founded on that very first block of teaching. And that very first block of teaching is the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew's Gospel, effectively, is all about how in Jesus, God is bringing in the reign of God, the reign of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. And that's what Jesus just keeps talking about all the time, the kingdom of heaven. And Matthew is saying, in Jesus, this is happening right now. And so on that first block of teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is describing what that kingdom of heaven looks like. So you might remember that after a short while, after he'd been in the desert and had worked out what it meant to be the beloved son, he gathered a few people who had been engaging with him to follow him, to be his disciples, and then he took them up a hill overlooking their world, overlooking Capernaum and the lake where they fished and they lived. Of all they had known of life, including the violence always lurking on the edge and the poverty defining each day, and gesturing at this world, Jesus invited them to imagine another world. A world where the most important people are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for God's justice the pure in heart, the merciful, the peacemakers, and those who are persecuted for the sake of God's justice. This is a world where all flourish, where the common good is held as paramount, a world where the needs of the poor are placed first, where all are treated with honour and respect, and they are given what they need to thrive. For Matthew, this is what the reign of Christ looks like. And we belong in this world when we long to be numbered among the poor in spirit, those who mourn the meek, those who hunger and thirst for God's justice, the pure in heart, the merciful, the peacemakers, and those who are persecuted for the sake of God's justice. So where do we see that reign in the world today? And where do we live in the reign of Christ ourselves Everything else in Matthew's gospel expands on that. That's the starting point. He's always circling back to that. He's kind of expanding on that, making it clearer what he means by that. So the, the story of the sheep and the goats, and you know, the sweet little picture might come up now. No, no, actually, it's not there. For some reason, it's not on the 930. So you don't get the sweet picture, sorry. Um even the story needs to be read, keeping in mind the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I'm not going to get into it, but there are a number of ways that you can read who are the sheep and the goats. Uh, there are a number of ways you can read who the little ones are. And there's a question about whether we as followers of the way of Christ are being judged or whether it's the nations of the world. So, we won't get into that. But what is interesting is that neither the sheep nor the goats understood what they were doing was with or not with Christ. They're both dumbfounded at the judgment. And it's not their beliefs that are being questioned, they're not being judged on their motivations, they're being judged simply on their actions whether or not they had offered generosity and compassion to the little ones. That was it. Now sometimes we read this as Christians and think, well, we need to do this because Jesus tells us to, or we need to do this to get into heaven. But actually, that's not what the story is about. The story is about, not about our motivations, it's not about doing something to earn anything. These people simply did it because that's who they were. They were people of compassion and generosity. They were, another image Jesus used a lot in Matthew's Gospel, good trees who produced good fruit. Good trees who lived in the abundance of God, and they produced good fruit. At their core, the sheep were people of compassion and generosity. And they didn't think about who they were being compassionate and generous to, they just were people of compassion and generosity. And the goats were not. A long time ago, Bonnie and I went to, when we were uh, involved in youth ministry, went to an event called the October event, which was an ecumenical youth ministry training event, held in October. That's where the name came from. And, uh, and it was a great event uh, with lots of youth leaders, lots of youth workers, and it taught you about how to run poor cool programs. Um, but the organisers eventually came to the conclusion that actually that wasn't what was needed. That the most important thing if you were a youth worker was who you were, your character. That was what young know, people were going to remember. They were going to remember whether you were a, a kind of compassionate and generous person or whether you were a grumpy person. So they always thought that Bonnie was a wonderful person and people described me as a grumpy person. So <laughs> it's just great. And, uh, but there are a whole lot of people who couldn't get their heads around that, so they ran their own October event and went back to, let's run some, a program about how you can run core programs. We don't need to worry about who we are. The core programs is the important thing. And so we changed our name to not the October event just so you. Know, People knew which one they were going to. I have the same kind of thing happening when I offer supervision. So when I offer supervision, and there are two groups of people I offer supervision to, I'm helping people explore who they are. So one of those groups of people are ministers, and generally when they come, when they start, uh, as one of them said to me, he wanted tips about how to grow his church and engage with the younger age group so that they didn't die out. I "I don't know if I can help you with that one, Uh, because I don't have any of the easy answers. And if I did have those easy answers, I probably wouldn't be doing this. I probably would be making a fortune going around the world telling people how to do this. But uh, but I can help you think about why you behave in certain ways in certain situations and why why your motivations are what they are, and why you react in some situations or not. That's what I can help we do. So we have eventually kind of got somewhere close to that. And um, with the spiritual directors, when they come, they are training. So actually what they do need is, we might call it, tips on how to be a spiritual director. What kind of questions to ask, when to ask, what they should be looking for. And, um, and I get their verbatim of their hour-long session all typed out, uh, and I have to read that. So sometimes they can be out 50 pages long. You have to read these things and make notes on the side and then go back and work out what you're going to do with these people. And um, and so to start off, with, it is all about tips, but slowly it changes to explore who they are as somebody offering spiritual direction and how that who they are affects the kind of questions they can ask. And so I remember one person coming, and spiritual direction is about helping. I would ask, I always ask at the beginning of the session, what is your understanding of spiritual direction now? Hoping that their understanding grows as they do more study. Sometimes it doesn't, which is a bit of a worry. And um, this person said it's about uh, helping people in their relationship with God, and then started the session. And as we went through the debate, there were a number of places where the person they were directing uh, would kind of raise God issues, and she would then change the subject. And I said to her, So, what was spiritual direction? It's about helping people with their relationship with God. So, this person raised the God thing here? Yep. Why didn't you follow that on? She said, Oh, well, I was brought up not to pride, and that your faith was personal. So,. I didn't want to cry with their personal stuff and I went okay, but what are we doing here? She said oh, we're helping them with their relationship with God and why have they come to see you? To, to talk to me about their relationship with God. Okay, so what's stopping you? Well, I was brought up not to cry. So what are we going to do with that? I think, I think we're going to have to let that one go and not see this as crying that actually, this isn't a this is helpful, this is why they've come. So it was an insight, it wasn't an external thing. She wasn't even aware of it until I asked her the question. And that's what I think the Sheep and the Goats is all about for us. It's not about, it's not so much about, it is about what we do, but it's actually inviting us to go deeper and to think, am I a person of compassion and generosity? And if I'm not, what do I need to do to change to be a person of compassion and generosity? So we're about to finish year A, and we're going to launch into Advent. And Advent is all about preparing for Christmas, but it's also thinking about the reign of Christ. It's also about when the kingdom of heaven is fulfilled. When all that God dreams for becomes a reality what God dreams for is that we all live as people shaped by the Beatitudes and are people of compassion and generosity, living in the abundance of God's compassion and generosity. So I invite you to spend this evening thinking about, as we prepare for Easter and think about what is the coming of the fullness of the reign of God. What is God inviting me to? as a person of compassion and generosity. What do I need to pick up? What do I need to let go of that I can be fully living in the abundance of God's generosity and compassion and be shaped by God's compassion and generosity? So I will have a moment to think about that and then will lead us in the uh, the affirmation of faith on page 400.